Welcome to the Amber Mack Show. I'm Amber Mack. On today's episode, we talk about algorithms and how the big technology companies use them to keep us consuming more of the things we might want and some of the things we probably shouldn't want. Just spend an afternoon with your kids on TikTok to see what I mean. We kick off the show with a conversation about big tech with Alex Kantrowitz, who is the author of Always Day One and the host of the Big Technology Podcast. And then I catch up with the co-founder of the AI Now Institute out of New York City to talk about the social implications of artificial intelligence. The Amber Mac Show is powered by TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home so you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. First up on today's show, I ask Alex about the role of big technology in today's world. I mean, the number one thing is the power. These companies have extraordinary power over what we buy, you know, what we do, and often what we think. I mean, if you think about Amazon, it controls our commerce. If you think about Facebook, it controls, you know, or has a big influence on our relationships with our loved one, Google. I mean, if you're looking for information, you're going to go through Google. You know, Apple and Microsoft, right? This is the devices we use and the way that businesses operate. Um, so I would say that, yeah, you, you, this is a remarkable group of companies. They make up more than 25% of the S&P 500 and the S&P 500, 500 biggest companies in the world. It's supposed to be fairly distributed. And to have five companies make up a quarter of that uh, is pretty remarkable. And I don't think we've really seen anything like this before in our history. Well, we all know the famous quote about what comes with great power. That is, of course, responsibility. And I would probably argue that over the years, uh, the relationship that the end consumer has with big tech has changed, especially when it comes to the issue of trust. What have you seen? I mean, I think that we're all more wary and definitely more understanding of what these companies are doing with our data. People right now have a pretty good recognition that companies like Facebook and Amazon are watching them. But on the other hand, we see that people are continuing to use these services. Facebook continues to grow, except with teens maybe. And Amazon, uh, for its part, is just becoming dominant with its prime offering. And then you think about what's happened to us in the pandemic, where we really can't spend too much time out in the physical world, and they've just become even more important. So we were already looking at a group of companies that were you know, extremely powerful. They've become more powerful. And though we do know the downsides, oftentimes, you know, we don't really have much of a choice but to play in their playgrounds. I do want to talk about uh, transparency within big technology because the issue of algorithms is something that comes up over and over again. It's not necessarily new. People think of algorithms as being a brand new thing, but we've had algorithms, algorithms for decades. So let's talk a little bit of going back to 2016 when you broke that story about uh, Twitter and uh, possibly rearranging our timeline using algorithms. Uh, walk us through what that process was like. Yeah, well, look, I mean, what we were seeing with algorithms sorting what the information we see is a relatively new thing. I mean, it's only four, five years old. Yeah, Facebook had an algorithm on the newsfeed and the algorithm was used uh, most effectively to sort a massive amount of information and show you what you care about. Uh, But Twitter and Instagram were all this pure reverse chronological feed. Essentially, the platform said, we're not going to really influence what you see. It will just come in the order of which people post it. But then Twitter and Instagram around that time said, listen, like, we are delivering a worse user experience to people by making them do the work and sifting through what they want to see. What we're going to do is use an algorithm to filter it for them uh, and, and show them uh, what we think they're going to want to see most. Um, you know, breaking the story was interesting. I had the scoop. I sent the story out, and people, uh, you know, by and large, said it was the end of Twitter. There was a hashtag RIP Twitter. 
uh, that was tweeted over the weekend about a million times. Uh, but I think that we can see from the user behavior that it was anything but the end of Twitter. In fact, Twitter's only become more powerful and relevant over time since then. And the same with Instagram. Well, even when we talk about the last four years and we think about algorithms, I mean, they've they've played a, a bigger role in our lives in many ways in terms of serving up content that may or may not be of interest to us. Uh, but of course, there are those conversations about how this can be damaging to our society when algorithms are in charge. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the dark side of algorithms? And I know the algorithms themselves are not doing this. There are humans behind that as well. Yeah, I mean, the algorithms, as a lot of people know now, because they've been discussed more in popular culture, tend to show you things that will keep you on the website, uh, you know, something like a Facebook or an Instagram or a Twitter for longer, uh, for as long as possible, right? And so what that does is, you know, there's a certain human interest in seeing things that are uh, outrageous and, um, you know, toxic and, and uh, not healthy, like it's a sort of, you think about the way we eat food, we'd much rather have junk food than broccoli and algorithms are the same way. They know the junk food for your mind and they uh, have engineered these platforms the same way uh, someone would engineer a potato chip to make you just wanna finish the whole bag even though you were only really in the mood for three or four. So that's really, I think the dark side is it's consumed our time uh, and also it's definitely uh, led us down a path where we gravitate towards reading things that divide us and make us mad uh, and then posting those things as well, because it's some sort of reinforcing cycle inside these platforms. What's also interesting is if you use the comparison of the food industry, we know that the food industry is highly regulated. If I pick up a, a, a bag of chips, I know exactly what's in those chips. I see the nutritional breakdown and more and more we're getting more data that is transparent to us. Do you believe that there will be a day when these big technology companies will have to be transparent in terms of their algorithms and, and how they are getting us to stay hooked on their platforms? Not as long as we continue to underfund the U.S. regulators. So if you put the, they have the dominion over these companies, right? If you put the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice's annual budget, the DOJ's antitrust division, you put those two budgets, annual budgets together, Facebook makes, Facebook alone makes more than those two combined over three days. So you're talking about annual budgets in the three to, you know, 500 million range for these agencies. And you're talking about quarterly revenue for Facebook alone of $17 billion. So how the hell can our regulators actually have a fair match against the tech giants and do the things that you mentioned, you know, get those nutritional labels, so to speak, on these tech companies? And they can't do it right now because they're overmatched. And the government just sort of, you know, talks a big game, talks about the things that these companies do wrong, puts out reports, makes YouTube videos, does Twitter moments. But when it comes down to actually putting the resources to the agencies that have a chance to do something, they don't do anything. They just sit on their hands. And I think that's a major problem that isn't really discussed very much. I do think we need the nutrition label for social media, but I don't think we're going to get it as long as the government continues to act this way. More money to the regulators. What would make that change? I mean, is, is there a possibility or a sliver of optimism in our future? I'd like to try to find some. I mean, I've spent basically the entire last week emailing Senator's office saying, you know, the people who are responsible for funding these agencies saying, hey, look, this is what, you know, I spoke with the people working inside these agencies. They told me that it was ridiculous, that they're severely underfunded. So I said, okay, well, I'm gonna bring it to the people who are supposed to fund them, senators. And, uh, you know, no one would speak on the record about that or give any on the record comment, even like a comment that says they support more money to these agencies. So I do think we're gonna need a political shift, uh, you know, in this world for us to be able to get to that point. 
Uh, and actually conversations like this, I think, can go a long way to doing it because the number one issue, I think, is awareness. I don't think people realize how outmatched a government can be against one of these tech giants, but the, the battle isn't even close right now. Well, it's interesting when you talk about awareness. Uh, I wanted to wrap up our conversation talking about the docudrama on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And um, I will just say that uh, I don't know if I'm a fan of that style of documentary and drama kind of mashed together, <laughs> but uh, apparently it's, it is helping some people understand more and more, again, the power that some of these technology companies have. What has been your response as you dive into that documentary? Yeah, I think it's raising important issues. I don't think it's fully, uh, you know, the measured nuanced take on these things that we need. Uh, I think it might define the tech world the same way the social network movie defined Facebook. So, uh, but I will say, no doubt, it's having a major impact. I mean, I have people who don't work in the tech industry just saying, hey, did you see that movie on Netflix? It's It's gotta be beyond powerful. I mean, I thought this is one of those tech moments, right? I thought about watching it and then I logged into Netflix and I didn't even have to go search it. It was there on the top. So, you know, Netflix, which, by the way, probably part of the problem here, uh, which, you know, has all these algorithmic issues the same way that Facebook and Google do. No one talks about that. Uh, but there it was recommending it. It's It's been a windfall for Netflix. Uh, and I think, look, the, the way that the measured people in the technology industry think about it is, hey, at least it's starting a conversation. We do need a conversation about the way that these companies are looking at our data and using algorithms, you know, to change the way we think and act. Uh, and I don't think it's as dramatic as that film makes it out to be, but I'm hoping, you know, like most information, people take it as a data point and then search for more information about it. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, like awareness, like get more awareness about it because knowledge is power. Let's figure out what's going on and be able to take action after that. There are many organizations studying the implications of algorithms. One of those is the AI Now Institute. Here's their co-founder, Meredith Whitaker, on where this technology shows up in our daily lives. All of us, to one extent or another, have our lives touched by algorithmic systems, whether we use, you know, all of us minus somebody who may live in the woods, right? <laughs> um, anyone who is inter interfacing with kind of you know, the normal tasks of life, you know, having a job or looking for a job, going to school, uh, you know, going to the doctor, um, using a cell phone, right, is interfacing or being assessed by different algorithmic systems that are making determinations about what content we see, you know, which school we may go to, uh, whether or not we get a job, uh, what type of diagnostic technology is available to us, um, and many other, you know, minor and major decisions that are shaping our lives, our access to resources, our livelihoods, and, uh, and you know, the world we live in. YouTube does this as well. It shows us, you know, the sort of, the, the also watch column on the side of YouTube shows us things they think will keep our attention, right? And that's because if they keep our attention, we spend more time on their sites. Um, they, you know, they, they get more ad dollars in the case of of YouTube, or they get more sort of you know, licensing money in the case of, of Netflix, depending on, on what we're watching. Um, and so, you know, we have to look at these as, as businesses that are implementing algorithms that are designed for a certain function. And in the case of Netflix or, or these other large tech companies, that function is ultimately profit, right? It's ultimately making, you know, as much money from what they're doing growing, you know, continuing to grow, continuing to satisfy their shareholder expectations. 
It's interesting too when you think about algorithms among the big technology players. You're right, there is some transparency there as far as how you see the end product in terms of serving up content. But if we think about government services or financial services and the algorithms that we don't see, let's talk for a second about how those algorithms could potentially affect us and also how it could lead to unfair bias as well as discrimination. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are there are many, many, many algorithmic systems, the majority of algorithmic systems that are embedded in processes where we don't see them. Uh, but we do see, you know, we, we sometimes see the, the effects of these. I think we, we can look at the use of facial recognition systems in policing and criminal justice. And there was a, an extraordinary uh, piece of investigative journalist published journalism published in the New York Times uh, about a month ago that profiled a man who was falsely arrested uh, based on a facial recognition match. So they used a facial recognition system to identify, you know, who is who is the suspect for this. And they brought up this man's profile and um, and he was arrested and, you know, then uh, uh, he was arrested based on on that data. And I think you know, when we see those types of instances, we need to look at you know the, the problems with these systems. And researchers like Joy Balamwini, Timnit Gebru, Deborah Raji have you know done pretty miraculous work showing the way in which these systems reflect bias and discrimination. So facial recognition systems are much less accurate at recognizing darker and more feminine faces than they are at recognizing whiter faces, uh, and that that problem is compounded by you know, racial discrimination and uh, sort of histories of racism in policing and criminal justice. What about the people who are the designers of these algorithms? Can you talk a little bit about how we could potentially ensure maybe that the algorithms were more fair and didn't lead to discrimination? How important is it that you have a team in place that holds those things close to their hearts as far as the goal of the algorithm? I, I think it is it is fundamentally important that there be diverse perspectives and diversity in the rooms that are designing and building these algorithms, and that is certainly far from the case right now. Uh, it's an extraordinarily white, extraordinarily male field in the Western context. Um, but I think we need to also expand what our our sort of definition of bias is because building a facial recognition system that recognizes all skin types equally, that is 100% accurate for any face, doesn't ensure that that technology is used to, uh, is used in, in service of justice, doesn't ensure that that technology is fair. It doesn't account for the power, power asymmetries and who is using that technology and who that technology is used on. So a 100% accurate facial recognition system that is still used by you know, a police force that you know, is, has, you know, that, that, is, that is racist or that you know, has a history of racial bias is not going to be an unbiased application. So again, we have to open our aperture and look at the histories and the social context and the power asymmetries in the use of these systems. So how does the AI Now Institute work alongside other research organizations to ensure that perhaps law enforcement, as one example with facial recognition, that they, they stop using that technology or they limit using that technology? How do all of you come together and, and fight that fight? 
Well, we are a research institute, so a lot of what we do is you know, ask questions about how these systems are being used. Our policy team may submit freedom of information requests to get more information on, say, law enforcement or other government uses. Uh, we may look at you know histories of use and point to examples of where things went wrong or where things went right and surface those as part of a public conversation that is working to understand and uncover how these technologies are used and find points of, you know, points where the public can be engaged, points where the public or, you know, a sector of the public may need to push back on the use of these algorithms. And so we see ourselves as one sort of one component of a larger effort um, to kind of organize around some of these issues to surface information around some of these systems uh, and to question the the power structures from which these systems are are emerging you know the, the large tech companies uh, and similarly situated interests that are the drivers of developing and deploying these kinds of technologies. We have seen some larger businesses announce that they will have groups that are overseeing the algorithms that are either developed or even used within those organizations. There's a AI ethical teams at some technology organizations. Do you think that's a step in the right direction or do we need to go even further? I think, well, I think we don't know a lot about how those oversight bodies or committees actually work. And they are ultimately not accountable to the public. So the danger there is that they create the illusion of oversight and the illusion of monitoring without actually doing that sufficiently. And that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the people who are inside those companies are beholden to the companies. They are employees of those companies and they, you know, they, they are going to likely do what they need to do to keep their job, even if it means, um, you know, not, not, not implementing sufficient oversight. So I think it, it certainly is not a replacement for democratic deliberation and you know, public engagement in these processes. I think there is also a point that needs to be made that the view from inside these companies is necessarily incomplete. They're never going to see the, the full implications of these technologies that are often deployed in contexts that are way outside of Silicon Valley, right? That don't match the experiences of the people who may be in the room in Silicon Valley. And so understanding what it means to deploy a system, you know, in one place or another, in one community or another, necessarily requires engagement with that community and leadership on behalf of that community. And, and while that is true and fairly obvious to many of us who have been working in these spaces for a long time, acting on that to ensure that type of democratic oversight would require a significant overhaul of how technology is built and how the tech industry works. How optimistic are you that we could get there? Well, I think we could always get there, right? But it's going to require people who have power right now giving it up or having it taken from them. So that's always a struggle, right? It's not, you know, this isn't about people recognizing that this is actually a better way to live and then sort of stepping down because they they want that change, right? This is not a battle of ideas. I think this is really an issue of power. And right now we see power is so squarely concentrated 
in a handful of large tech companies that are responsible for a lot of the the algorithmic systems or the infrastructure on which these algorithmic systems are running, um, that we do need to treat this as you know as a struggle over power. And we do you know that that's where history comes in. That's where looking at you know how have how have people in the past contended with forces that you know, felt this powerful that were this powerful. Last question for you. For the average person right now who is hearing more and more about AI systems and algorithms and thinking, what role can I play as far as ensuring this doesn't neg negatively affect my life? Is there something that the average person can do out there who's listening to the show and, and, and curious about how they can help? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I would sort of point to the adage, sort of dig where you stand, right? Because it's very likely that concerns that you already have in your community around, you know, your school district or, you know, your your workplace or, or what have you will have some algorithmic component to put it that way. So beginning to look into, you know, if you are if you are active on your school board, right? Are they using algorithmic systems to monitor children while they are, you know, learning remotely during COVID? What are the what are the privacy implications of that? What are the fairness implications? How are those systems working? What contracts were signed between a school district and a vendor uh, in procuring such a system? Are they using automated decision systems to determine which childs go to which schools? And is this exacerbating segregation? Right? Uh, is it you know th there are questions like this that are already situated within contexts that a lot of people are engaged in, right? You don't need to become a technical expert to engage on these questions. I think the first step is just asking, where is technology being engaged in this context? And what implications does that have for the values that I care about, for the future that I wanna live in? Before we dive into my essay on algorithms, here's more from our sponsor at TP-Link. If you live in a larger home and wanna connect multiple devices to your network, including streaming cameras, you might want to consider a TP-Link mesh network. This allows you to blanket your home in Wi-Fi, and not just standard Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi 6. So you can future-proof your home with four times greater capacity to connect more devices. Technology is moving fast and furiously ahead. The past few months have taught us that better home connectivity and smart devices can help us live, work, and play in a stress-free way. And now it's time for today's essay. Let's play a little game. I'm gonna read a dictionary definition and you're gonna tell me what word I looked up. Here it is. A finite set of unambiguous instructions that given some set of initial conditions can be performed in a prescribed sequence to achieve a certain goal and that has a recognizable set of end conditions. Yes, that is the basic definition of an algorithm. And if you knew that, you're probably in the minority. If the dictionary definition seems a little unclear, Think of an algorithm like a recipe, because a recipe actually is an algorithm. It is a set of instructions with initial conditions, like get the ingredients, cookware, preheat the oven, that can be performed in a prescribed sequence, like cooking, to achieve a certain goal, i.e. making a dish, and has a recognizable set of end conditions. The dish turns out like it's supposed to and looks like the picture. In the context of technology and the internet, Algorithms are largely discussed with respect to how they affect social media platforms and users of those platforms. A given algorithm is the recipe for how and when information and content gets delivered to end users. That's you and me. Does this algorithmic sorting or parsing of content need to happen? 
No, but if it didn't, there would be too much information too quickly too often, and you wouldn't have enough time to process any one thing before another thing came through. In other words, your timelines and news feeds aren't chronological. Rather, they're algorithmically sorted to present you with what is most relevant to you. At this point, you might be asking yourself how an algorithm created by a small group of people can decide what relevance is for billions of individual users. That's only half the issue. Whether we like it or not, a lot of our contemporary human experience is at least altered and at most determined by our media and social media experiences. And the media and social media experiences of various people close to us. In a very real way, the advent of social media made good on the internet's promise to connect the world and give everyone a voice in the public square. But in doing so, social media fundamentally changed how people around the world experience reality. And proprietary algorithms are at the heart of why and how this happens. I'm not necessarily saying that the companies that own social media platforms are always experimenting on us, but it's obvious that they could. I'm not necessarily saying that they have a financial incentive to lead users towards what people like author and activist Eli Pariser, who wrote the book, The Filter Bubble, referred to as informational determinism, but it's obvious that they do. And it goes without saying that in our algorithmically determined reality, misinformation and disinformation campaigns are startlingly easy to create and unfortunately very effective. Election interference in 2016 is the most obvious example, but there are several others. In 2018, Mashable writer Chris Taylor suggested that Russian trolls couldn't do half the damage that YouTube's algorithm and its lack of meaningful human oversight had done to US politics. Taylor had noticed that in the aftermath of the school shooting at Stonemason Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, the worst school shooting in American history, a video claiming the shooting was a hoax and that one of the survivors was a crisis actor actually made it to the top of YouTube's trending section. This is just one of countless examples of this kind of thing happening on YouTube and elsewhere online. That isn't even the worst of it. In 2017, artist and technologist James Bridle wrote a viral Medium article which contained this horrifying sentence. Someone or something or some combination of people and things is using YouTube to systematically frighten, traumatize, and abuse children, automatically and at scale, and it forces me to question my own beliefs about the internet at every level. It turns out that people have been finding a way to trick the YouTube kids algorithm into queuing up disturbing videos that ended up being played for very young children. Companies that own and operate social media platforms make most of their money from digital advertising targeted at users about whom they have scores of data. Data helps advertisers and anyone else sponsoring posts to deliver highly targeted content and messaging. The companies therefore have a financial incentive to keep users on their platforms as long as possible. And generally speaking, they do this by pushing us towards or into our respective filter bubbles, where everything is agreeable and nothing is threatening. This again is what some refer to as informational determinism, which removes a pesky little thing called free will. Some sources suggest that up to 98% of Facebook's revenue comes from advertising. Think about your personal social media use for just a second. 
I personally have accounts on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and a secret account on TikTok. Now think about your colleagues, friends, and family members and what they're on and where they're most active. Chances are the people you thought of, provided there are users on some type of platform, are on at least one of these platforms, but probably even more than that. In fact, there are billions of people on Earth, and billions of those people are online on social networks, consuming news and sharing memes and posting photos and telling jokes and chatting with friends, selling products and services, and of course, arguing with strangers. According to Data Reportal's digital snapshot from this past July, there are roughly 4 billion people on social media networks. So think about this again. A finite set of unambiguous instructions that, given some set of conditions, can be performed in a prescribed sequence to achieve a certain goal and that has a recognizable set of end conditions. Instructions performed in a prescribed sequence to achieve a certain goal. What's the goal? I think you probably have an idea by now in terms of answering that question. And when it comes to big technology, it ends with one word, and that's profit. After all, there's an old internet saying that goes something like this. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. While there are plenty of algorithms that benefit society, it's useful and important to understand how algorithms work and the impact they will have on the world today, tomorrow, and far into the future. And when you start to appreciate this impact, that's when you know that it's worth fighting for fair use. Thanks for listening to The Amber Mack Show and thanks for subscribing. This show is produced by Amber Mack Media. And if you want to check out some video snippets from the show, please follow me at Amber Mack. Finally, thanks to our sponsors, TP Link, for your support.